out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The 130th Psalms. Charles Wesley wrote, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, all the way back in 1744. So it's been around for a minute. Uh, some of you remember when it first came out, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> just kidding, making sure you're with me. But 1744, uh, and he wrote it uh, in the midst of a growing class divide in England between the rich and the poor. Uh, he also wrote the song in response to an expanding crisis of orphans who were going uh, without care in a culture that was growing less and less sensitive uh, to the needs of others. Uh, one day, Charles uh, Wesley was reading through the book of Haggai, and in the book of Haggai, the prophet delivers a promise to the nation of Israel. The prophet speaks to the nation of Israel uh, on behalf of God, and this is what God said to the nation of Israel. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. This was the verse that Charles Wesley was reading when he was inspired to, to write a prayer in his journal. And it's that prayer that became the song that we just got through listening to a moment ago, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Uh, most people believe that Charles Wesley wrote between 6,000 and 8,000 songs. So he was a prolific songwriter and a gift to the church, continues to be a gift to the church still today. But Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, it wasn't catapulted into popularity until over 100 years later when a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon. And on a Sunday morning, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon using Come Thou Long Expected Jesus as the backdrop of his message. And the point that he was trying to illustrate using the song was basically this, that very few human beings are ever born to become a king. Very few human beings are ever born to become a king. But Jesus was the only person in all of history who was born a king without first having been born a prince. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's why they call him Spurgeon. Uh, and, and so he used that song as, as his sermon, and from that moment on, it was just, it was kind of thrust into mainstream, and it's a song that we're still singing today after it was written in 1744. And the song is so much more than just a song. It's actually a prayer. It's a prayer of longing. It's a prayer of watching and waiting. It's a prayer of hope. And, and it's a prayer of longing and hope that's born out of a promise 
That, that's really what it is. When, when you think about the words and you, you hear them or you sing them, it, it's a prayer of longing and hope that is born, that rises up out of a promise. Uh, it's a song that resonates with the human soul because I think it taps into one of the most common of human experiences. And not only is it one of the most common of human experiences, it's one of the most difficult of human experiences, uh, especially when it comes to life and uh, even more so maybe when it comes to faith. And, and the thing that it really taps into is the idea of waiting. Come thou long expected Jesus. Now, when it comes to waiting, I think Tom Petty was right. Waiting is the hardest part. Uh, if you wanna see someone become impatient, if you wanna see someone become frustrated or angry or see someone quit or walk away prematurely or, or see somebody act in a way that's not typically characteristic of themselves, then just make them wait. And just not make them wait, but make them wait longer than they want to wait or make them wait longer than they think they should have to wait, or make them wait longer than they think they can possibly wait. Uh, we've all seen people, unfortunately, lose their minds when they have to wait for a table. Many of us, we see the best of it on Sundays after church. When the church people leave the church and they go to the Cracker Barrel or they go to the corral that's called Golden and they go to that place and they're like, hey, I need a table, you're gonna have to wait. Wait, you say? Me? Do you not? Okay, and it's like they just lose their mind. And we've seen people, you know, lose their mind when they have to wait for food or maybe you're in an airport and you saw somebody just kind of just flip out on a flight attendant because they had to wait for a delayed flight. Uh, you know how it feels, how frustrating it can feel. You can feel the anger kind of welling up when you, when you get trapped, you know, in a traffic jam. You know, you prayed that morning, you crossed your fingers, you did your little dance, hoping that you got on 75 North and you'd make it all the way to Lexington without anything happening. You didn't want to be one of those people who get on Facebook and say, don't get on 75 today. It's a horror. It's a terrible place to be. But yet there you are, you're stuck on 75 yet again. We don't have any idea what happens every single, every other day, but there we are, we're stuck. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I, I, don't, I don't have time for this. I didn't plan on this. Uh, the frustration that comes from waiting for your good friend to respond to your text. And they've got an iPhone, so you see it was delivered. <laughs> You're not like the jerks who've gone Android on us and they've got the little green bubble. It's like, did it go through? Is it lost in space? But no, they're our iPhone friends. And it was delivered. It's like, why have they not responded? It's like, you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. It's like, what's going on? Or the waiting that comes from trying to get a human on the phone when you call customer service. How terrible. Please tell me your problem. Well, right now, you, my friend, Animatron, you are my problem. Please give me a human being. So it's waiting. Waiting, we're not good at waiting. We're just not good at it. And waiting, it's actually, we're not even conditioned to do it in the modern age because it's all about, you know, immediate gratification. It's about with the quickness. It's about as fast as we want it, we want to get it. But, but here's the thing, deeper within us, our brains actually play tricks on us when we have to wait. And that, that's what makes us predisposed to not enjoy waiting. It's what makes us predisposed to resist waiting. And, and there's a whole psychology of waiting uh, that, that's really interesting to read about. And I won't bore you a lot with it, but I'll bore you some with it. Uh, experts, they, they've long observed, now think about this, they, they've observed for a long time that perceived wait time actually seems longer than actual wait time. In other words, as you wait from your perspective and from your experience, time actually seems to pass slower than it actually does. 
There's always 60 minutes in an hour. There's always 60 seconds in a minute. But when you're waiting, it seems as though there's 180 seconds in a minute. It seems as though there's 180 minutes in an hour. Now, you know that's not true, but that's how we perceive it. And, it, and it's a psychology of how we actually perceive what's going on around us. Our brains, it, it plays tricks on us when we're waiting. Um, <clears throat> that's why it's been proven that most people, uh, they care more about the length of the shopping checkout line than they do about how fast it's moving. So people more times than not will choose a shorter line that's moving slower than they will a longer line that's moving faster. Because our perception of time, it gets all jacked up when we're having to wait or when we think we're gonna wait. It's also connected to the idea that unoccupied time passes slower than occupied time. In other words, when you're bored, time passes slower than when you're busy. Uh, I read about the Houston International Airport. Uh, they got tired, really, of fielding complaints about people once they got off their flight, you know, waiting at baggage claim for their, for their luggage to get there. So they redesigned the airport, and you know what they did? It was genius. They just moved the arrival gates further away from baggage claim because they knew it would take longer for them to walk from their arrival gate to the baggage claim. Now, it still took basically the same amount of time to get the luggage off of the plane and get it to baggage claim, but it felt shorter to everybody because they weren't standing there waiting. They were spending all their time walking there. It, it didn't shorten any time at all. It didn't save any time at all. But it, again, it's the way we perceive time. It's the way we experience reality as we wait. Now, experts, they, they say there's actually certain types of waiting that's most difficult of all. Undefined waiting, unexplained waiting, unfair waiting, and uncomfortable waiting. Uh, waiting is hard when we don't know how long it's going to be. I'm going to need you to wait. Well, how long do you need me to wait? I don't know. That, that's difficult on us. Uh, unexplained waiting, uh, you're going to have to wait. Well, tell me why I'm having to wait. Well, I can't tell you why you're having to wait. You just, got, you just have to wait. And, and again, that's difficult for us to do when we, when we don't understand why we're having to wait. Unfair waiting. When it seems like we're having to wait, but other people aren't. Somebody else cut lines. Somebody else bribed, you know, the gatekeeper, and they're going in, and we're not. And, it, and it's just unfair. And then it's just, I can't wait. during. This is just unfair. Or uncomfortable waiting. And waiting, it, it nearly becomes impossible when our waiting is associated with pain or discomfort. When, when the waiting is painful, it, it's, it's very hard to wait. Now, I say all that to say this. At the heart of the Christmas story is a group of people who were asked to wait. And it was undefined, it was unexplained, it felt unfair, and most of the time, in many seasons of that waiting, it was uncomfortable. And, and that's really at the heart of the Christmas story is this idea of waiting. And just not waiting for Christmas, but the most difficult kind of waiting when it came to waiting for Christmas. You see, the story of Christmas, it begins with a promise that would require faith to believe it. But it would result in hope because you would need hope in order to wait for it. That's, that's the Christmas story. There's a promise that God made that would require faith in order to believe it. But the faith that you have that believes the promise results in hope that you're going to need as you wait for it. You see, before all the things that we love about the Christmas story, before those things were ever part of the Christmas story, there was a promise. And there was a group of people who believed that promise in faith. 
And there was a group of people who began to live in the power of that faith. And we call the power of that kind of faith hope. And as they hoped, they waited for that promise of Christmas to be kept. That means before visiting angels, before Gabriel, before a virgin named Mary, before a carpenter by the name of Joseph, before shepherds out in the field, before wise men from the east, and for, uh, before a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, there was just a promise of Christmas. And there was just a small group of people who chose to believe that promise. It resulted in hope in their present as they expected that some point in the future, God would keep that promise. And so generation after generation after generation after generation of people, a remnant of people, not even the majority of people, but a remnant, a minority of people oftentimes, they decided that they would place their faith in God's promise. And the result of that faith in God's promise would result in hope in their present condition as they looked forward to a future where they believed that God would keep his promise. Their waiting was undefined. God didn't say, hey, I'm going to tell you how long you have to wait. It was open-ended. It was unexplained. God didn't tell them why they were having to wait. It seemed unfair because oftentimes it felt like in Israel, other people were way ahead in the line. Other people were getting all the attention and they were getting left behind. And oftentimes for Israel, for the remnant of people who decided by faith to believe God's promise, it was an uncomfortable wait. It was a painful wait. It was an excruciating wait. So the story of Israel's waiting for Christmas is the backstory to the story of Christmas. And that's basically what the Old Testament is all about. I, I can save you a whole bunch of reading. The Old Testament is all about a group of people waiting for a promise to be kept. That's what it's like. The Old Testament is all about God's people, Israel, about the faithful remnant, they were waiting, like the psalmist said, like a watchman on the wall, waiting for the dawn, waiting for the dawn of the morning, waiting for the dawn of the day when God would keep his promise, when their king would come, a king who in some way would be the king of kings, who would be the hero of heroes, who would be the prophet of prophets, who would be the teacher of teachers. They waited like watchmen on the wall, waiting for the day to dawn, for that day when God would keep his promise. Listen to the words again and put it in context of Christmas and Israel and the faithful remnant who believed God's promise. I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, in his promise, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen that wait for the dawn. More than the watchmen that wait for the dawn. That's a description of the faithful remnant of Israel in the Old Testament. Watching and waiting and trusting in God's word, in God's promise, and living their lives in hope. You say, what's hope? Hope is a present confidence in a future reality that isn't yet reality, that you believe is going to be a reality because God said one day it would be reality. And the promise that Israel decided to believe is a promise that God whispered to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And just so you know it, some of you know this already, but many of you don't. Genesis 12 
is really the chapter that we need to understand in order to understand all the rest of the Old Testament. I'll tell you, there's lots of fishy stuff in the Old Testament. There's lots of head-scratching stuff in the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. It's like, gosh, that's hard to believe. I'm not sure a thinking person could believe that or what in the world's going on here and what in the world's going on there. All that's fun to talk about. It's interesting to talk about. And at times, it's important to talk about. But you can get lost in the parts and miss the point. Don't get lost in the parts and miss the point. The point of the Old Testament begins in Genesis chapter 12. It really begins to take shape in Genesis chapter 12. When God, after Adam and Eve has rebelled in the garden, and after man has rebelled against God and sin has infiltrated the created order, God intersects himself with a guy by the name of Abraham in history, about 2,000 or so years uh, before Jesus is ever going to be a thought on, on the pages of history. Abraham shows up and God says to him, I will make you into a great nation, Abraham. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, Abraham. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham, which was kind of funny because uh, he's not a great grandfather. He's not a grandfather. He's not a father. So if you have no descendants, how are you going to be the father of a great nation? He had no children, but God says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And this sounded more than unbelievable. This sounded impossible. But God said, I'm going to do it. I promise you, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And I know, I know it's kind of elementary and I know it's kind of bottom shelf, but, but yet sometimes that's where we find the most profound things. Right now, the secular world regards Abraham, a figure of history, not a made-up character of religion, but, but a person of history. The secular world regards Abraham as the father of the three great religions of the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. So all of the secular world speaks of Abraham as being the father of these three great world religions. People all over the world recognize the name of Abraham. God promised Abraham thousands of years ago, I will make your name great. And guess what? He did. He did. This is amazing. This literature is thousands of years old, and it's true today. It's just something to think about. God said, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, let's all say all peoples, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In some way, every nation, every person in the world will be influenced, benefited, and affected by you, Abraham. Every person. And this is something staggering to think about. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he says all peoples on the earth, guess what? You are all peoples. You're part of the all peoples because here you are on earth and you are a people. And in that moment, God was making a promise to Abraham that included you, that included me. I mean, this is staggering. This is fascinating. This is such compelling literature to think about in terms of our faith, in terms of what we're celebrating this time, this time of year. Abraham. I'm going to bless those who bless you. And all the nations of the world, all the peoples of those nations are going to be affected by you. So here's God in Genesis 12, setting in motion his plan to bring his family back into his house. This is God putting a plan in motion to win his family back from sin, sorrow, and death. 
And the rest of the Old Testament, that's what it's about. God winning his family back. Uh, a little bit later on, God reiterates the same promise to Abraham and even goes a little bit further and says, Abraham, kings will come from you. And again, he has no children. He has no grandchildren, but kings are going to come from you. And in that moment, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, and in that season of Abraham's interactions with God, Abraham chose to put his faith in what God said. He chose to place his faith in God's word, in God's promise. And the faith that he placed in God's promise, it brought hope to Abraham in his present moment as he looked to the future, a future that wasn't yet reality, but God said one day it would be reality. And Abraham believed that it would be just as if it already was. Wow. <laughs> That's Abraham. It all sounded impossible. It sounded implausible. God promised Abraham, hey, you're going you're gonna to father a family. You're going to father a nation. You're going to father a kingdom. And this nation that you're going to father, Abraham, they're going to be God's chosen nation. They're going to be God's chosen people through whom he will save the world. Abraham, your descendants, God is going to save the world through your descendants. You're going to have a son, Abraham. You're 75. Your wife, Sarah, is 65. You're not even going to have to visit a pharmacy, Abraham. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a baby. Some of you have no idea. That's okay. It's probably for the best. Abraham, you're going to have a son at 75. I am? You are. Okay. Shall I start today? I think you should. And so, you know, he does what any of us would do. He's like, okay, let's go. Let's do what we got to do to make this thing happen. And nothing happens. Because sometimes when God gives a promise and sometimes when we place our faith in that promise and hope comes from that faith in that promise, sometimes the fulfillment of that promise does not come immediately. Matter of fact, oftentimes the thing that precedes God's promise is waiting. And Abraham's going to have to wait 25 years on God to keep that promise. And in that 25 years, Abraham, he's gonna grow impatient, he's gonna grow frustrated, he's gonna try to help the process out, he's gonna make some missteps, he's gonna make some mistakes, it's gonna cost him later on and we don't have time to talk about. But he's gonna have to wait 25 years because sometimes when God makes a promise and we place our faith in that promise, we live in hope because we're gonna have to wait for the fulfillment of that promise. So Abraham and Sarah have a son by the name of Isaac, and Isaac has a son by the name of Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the heads of the 12, 12 tribes of Israel. And one of Jacob's son, sons is a guy by the name of Joseph, which Moses wrote a lot of chapters about in the Genesis narrative because there were some really important things, apparently, that Moses wanted us to know about Joseph. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Well, why was he hated by his brothers? Because he had a dream. And God had made a promise to him in that dream that one day God was going to do something amazing in and through the life of Joseph. He was going to save his family. He was going to save his nation, perhaps even save the world. But his brothers hated him for it. They sold him into slavery. And then once he was a slave, he was wrongfully accused and convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. And so now he's locked up in prison, an innocent guy who's been said to be guilty. But the thing that he never did over all the years of being hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, being wrongfully accused and convicted of a crime that he didn't commit, the one thing that he refused to do was let go of the promise that God had given him. He placed his faith in God's word. It brought hope 
Hope to his present as he looked to a future that wasn't yet reality that he believed one day would be a reality. And he never stopped believing. He never stopped trusting. He never let go of God's promise. And so he lived his life in hope. And he had to wait 13 years for God to begin to keep that promise. And after 13 years, he gets promoted. He becomes the prime minister. He saves his family. He saves Egypt. He saves that part of the world. His family and he are reconciled. They live in Egypt and everything worked out until it didn't. Joseph dies, his family dies, but his descendants live on in Egypt. All of a sudden there's a Pharaoh that's not friendly to Joseph. Sees all those Israelites out there and says, I'm gonna make these Israelites slaves because they're a threat to my kingdom. Now God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only that through them, God was gonna somehow bless the world and save the world, but he promised them a piece of real estate. He promised them a land. We call it the land of Canaan. We call it the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. He, he promised them a piece of land, but now they're living in Egypt. They're not living in the place that God had promised them. So what do they have to do? They have to trust. They have to believe. And not everybody would, but a faithful few, a faithful remnant would believe that God's word could be trusted. Despite the circumstances, despite what was happening in front of them, despite what was happening to them, they decided that they could trust God and they did. And so they lived their life in hope and they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited and then they died. And then another generation waited and they waited and they waited until they died. And 400 years went by of waiting. And we don't like to wait a week. We don't like to wait a month. We don't like to wait a year. We don't, four, 400 years, four centuries without an answer to the prayer, without a fulfillment to the promise. But then after 400 years, God decides it's time and God sends Moses. They are delivered out through what we call the Exodus. And just when it seems like they're gonna inherit the promise, they disobey God and they go wander for 40 years, waiting 40 more years in the wilderness. Waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Generations are dying, waiting, but they die believing. And just because you die waiting doesn't mean that you can't die believing. And it doesn't mean that you can't die trusting that one day outside of your days, God will keep his promises. God will keep them every single time. All five of you, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Meet me at two o'clock, we'll preach the devil's funeral today, okay? There we are. So they move into the land and it's like, okay, they inherit the promise. Then Joshua dies and you know, then the elders die and then there's like 430 years of social chaos. It's the time of the judges. God had promised Abraham that not only would they become a family, not only that they become a nation, but they would become a kingdom. But the book of Judges says in those days, there were no king, there was no king in Israel and every person did what was right in their own eyes. So they waited 430 years for the promise that the nation would become a kingdom. And after 430 years in the year 1050 BC, Samuel the prophet placed a crown upon the head of Saul the Benjaminite and he was crowned king of Israel. And God, after hundreds of years, matter of fact, after a thousand years, after his promise to Abraham, God had kept his promise. And the descendants of Abraham had become a kingdom. After Saul comes David, the one who slew Goliath, the shepherd boy promoted to be king. 
And as David is king, God makes him a promise. And it's a reiteration of the promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But he expands it a little bit further. And he personalizes it. And he tailor makes it for David. And this is what God promised David. I will make your name great, David, just like Abraham. Like the names of the greatest men on earth. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your descendants to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build for me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So what's going on here? God promised David a dynasty. God promised that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne of himself, that he would sit upon the throne of David and that he would never be toppled from that throne. He would be a king of kings, ruling over a kingdom that would topple all other kingdoms, a kingdom that would last forever. And this promise that he made to David, it was unconditional, it was irrevocable. And we all know David's story. And just because David screwed up, and just because David fell flat on his face, and just because David didn't live up to the expectations that the people of his day perhaps had placed on him, God made a promise. And it didn't matter who David was, and it didn't matter what David had done. It mattered what God had said, and it mattered who God was. God is no liar. He cannot lie, and he had spoken a promise, and that promise was of a future reality that was not yet reality, but it was as though it was already a reality because it was settled, and it was done because God had spoken it. Amen. After David came Solomon, and it was the golden era, so much so that when the queen of Sheba came to Solomon, she said, oh, I'll tell you, the half has not been told of this guy and his glory. This is amazing. And everybody's thinking, well, maybe Solomon's the guy. Maybe Solomon's the one who's going to reign forever. But then Solomon dies, and his son takes over, and his son sparks a civil war, and the kingdom splits into north and south. And for 300-plus years, the next part of the Old Testament is God calling his people back to faith, faith in the promise that was first spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, trust in his word, that God was doing something through Israel that one day would save and impact the world. And so he sent prophets to call the people back. <clears throat> prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet saying, come back, place your faith in what God has said. In the north, it was just bad, bad, bad. It was one bad generation after a generation after generation after generation, and they would never turn back to God. Right. But down in the south, like us, they were kind of in and out. They were kind of hot and cold, and they would turn to God, then they would turn away from God. But in the midst of all of that, and this, is, this, is, this, is, this is who we want to be. In the midst of all of that, there was always a remnant. There was always a small group of people who believed. They believed when there was no good reason to believe. When their circumstances said something different. When reality said something different. They chose to believe God because God said it. And they believed that God would do it. And there was a remnant who believed God. Eventually, God allowed the South to go their own way and suffer the consequences of their choices. And one of the great devastating events in the Old Testament 
It happened in the year 586 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And the descendants of Abraham no longer really existed as a kingdom anymore. It seemed as though the kingdom was gone. It seemed as though the nation was split. It seemed as though the promise was lost. It seemed as though everything that they had been clinging to, it had been ripped from their hands and there was no reason to fight to hold on to it. It seemed as though the promises of God had been forgotten. It seemed as though the promises of God were irrelevant. It seemed as though the promises of God were really never promises at all. They're taken away to captivity in Babylon, but God had promised them through Jeremiah. God had promised them that after 70 years in the land of captivity, God's bringing them back because God promised Abraham, hey, that through him and his descendants, they would be a nation and a kingdom. And through that kingdom and through that nation, God was going to somehow save all the peoples of all the nations. God's coming for you and God's coming for me and God's coming for us and God's coming for the nations. And he's not going to take no for an answer. So God brings them back. Because God keeps his promise. They come back, they rebuild the walls, they start rebuilding the temple, they start rebuilding the city, and perhaps now, after all these years, God's gonna finally keep his promise, and everything's gonna be said and done. Everything's gonna be fulfilled. And God's gonna bless the entire world through Israel. But you know what? Israel's gonna continue to be dominated. If not by the Babylonians, by the Persians. If not by the Persians, by the Greeks. If not by the Greeks, then by the Romans. But all the while, there was always a group holding on to promises. Promises like Isaiah, when he reminded the people in the darkest of days, he said, therefore, don't let go of the promise that the Lord himself one day will give you a sign. There will be a virgin who will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. For a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. It was an echo of God's promise to David. It was an echo of God's promise to Abraham. He will rest on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forevermore, forevermore. And Isaiah would speak these promises to people that were doing their best to hold on, doing their best to believe. When everything else said there's no good reason to believe, there's no good reason to hope, just look around, just read the paper, listen to the news. Things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. Why would you believe what you believe in the face of what you see and what you hear and what you're experiencing? But the prophets were saying to the people, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. And our faith is in the promises and in the word of God. And when we place our faith on his word, there's hope that rises. And when hope rises, we live our lives in hope of a future reality that isn't a reality, that one day will be a reality. And we live today as though it already is. And so the prophet would come along and say, hold on to this. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, Israel. Amen. What? Amen. Don't you see we're living in darkness, Isaiah? Don't you see how desperate we are? Don't you see the despair our people's in? We're a mess. Our cities are in ruins. Our kingdom is divided. Our kings have been lost. They're taken captive. But yet God says, I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. That's all those peoples that God was talking about in Genesis 12. That's all the nations of the earth that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. 
Isaiah said, there's coming a day, Israel, when the worship of the one true God of Israel, the one true God, Jehovah, it's not going to be geographically confined to the land of Canaan. It's going global. And God is going to be the God of the nations, just not this nation. Because through this nation, God is going to save the nations of the world. So arise, shine, for your light has come. It's as good as done. Your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears. And I love this. I wish I could just take time and just have a spell, but I'll, I'll. There's darkness, but in the darkness, he's already told us there's light. And it doesn't matter how deep the darkness is that has descended over the culture. Among the people of God that has placed their faith in his word. Among the people of God that has placed their faith in his promise. There is a light that is shining. And there is a light that is dawning. And as we stand on the wall like watchmen waiting for the dawn of the day. When God will keep his promises. Isaiah says keep watching for the dawn. Because the dawn is coming and God will keep his promises. Nations, Israel, will come to your light and kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. You are God's chosen people. You are God's chosen nation that he is gonna use to bring light to the world. So you cling to that, Israel. You hold on to that. You're gonna have to place your faith in that. And when you do, you're gonna have the hope that's gonna be required to wait for it. Nearly 200 years later when Abraham's family that's become a nation and a kingdom and after the kingdom has been lost and it seems like the promise has been forgotten and Israel is the dominant, or being dom- Israel's being dominated by the, by the empires of the world. There's one last prophet that shows up, which takes us from Genesis 12 to the final book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And Malachi shows up 1,600 years after Genesis 12, 1,600 years after God told Abraham, I'm gonna make you the father of a family. I'm gonna make you the father of a nation. I'm gonna make you father of a kingdom. And through your nation and through this kingdom, God is gonna save the world. And Malachi shows up and gives the people struggling to believe to a remnant of people that's struggling to cling to hope. He says, God says, my name will be great among the nations. I know it doesn't seem like Jehovah's name's gonna be great among the nations. It seems like everything's been lost. You feel forgotten, you feel forsaken. Those promises feel like fantasies. But God has sent me to tell you that his name is gonna be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, to the ends of the earth. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. In every place where people worship, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And to a people living in darkness, among people sitting in darkness, there was a remnant standing on the wall like watchmen waiting for the dawn, waiting for the dawn of the day when God would keep his promise. 
promise that from one man, God would save the world. Through one family, God would save the world. Through one nation and one kingdom, God would save the world. And Genesis 12 to the end of Malachi, the Old Testament is preparing us for something. The Old Testament is preparing us for someone, that shepherd who's coming to lead his people. That king who's coming to sit on a throne and rule with justice and righteousness forevermore. That child that would be born, that son who would be given, the one whom the government would rest upon his shoulders, that prophet that Deuteronomy said would be the prophet of prophets, the king of all kings who would sit over the kingdom that would topple all kingdoms. The Old Testament's getting us ready for something. We open up the pages of the New Testament hundreds of years after Malachi spoke. And it says in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man by the name of Joseph, a descendant of David. I wonder why he put that in there. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, the echoes of Isaiah's words from 700 years before. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked? I'm a virgin. The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One that will be born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And then the angel said, because no word from God will ever fail. There's a baby about to be born, just like God said it would happen, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would arise out of the tribe of Judah from the line of Jesse, that he would emerge from the house of David, born in Bethlehem to a young virgin that would serve as a sign to the world that he has come, that God has come to redeem the world from sin. And there was a remnant in those days that were still clinging to that promise like watchmen on the wall, waiting for the dawn, waiting for the dawn of a day that had finally came. Generation after generation after generation had stood on that wall and waited for the dawn that never came. But at the right time, at the appointed time, when everything was just right, the dawn began to break through the darkness and those sitting in darkness 
began to see a great light. So what does this mean for us? Well, God may delay in keeping his promises, but God never fails to keep his promises. Your unanswered prayers is not the same as an unkept promise. God will keep his promises. God may even wait until you've taken your last breath because God's promises are not confined to my generation. His promises are timeless and God will fulfill them when he wants because he is God and he knows when and he knows where is best. So what do we do? We trust his promise. We hope for his promise. We live believing in a reality that isn't yet reality, that one day will be, and we live today as though it already is, and we wait on his promises. And when it comes to God's promises, they're a portrait of our future. If you wanna know what your future looks like, just look at the promises of God. You see, God's promises give us hope for how things will be in the future despite how bad things might be in the present. The Apostle Paul, with all of the Old Testament, I believe in his mind, he picked up his pen and he wrote to a group of Christians and he said this to them, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen to the glory of God. That all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, fulfilled in Jesus, realized in Jesus, received in Jesus. They are yes, they are sure, they are firm, they are solid, and they are amen. They are true. They are just as true as though they've already happened, though they may not have. All of the promises of God are in him, yes, and amen. I'll leave it here. Words that I remind myself of. Many days that I keep written in all my journals. Trevor, this is for you, this is for us. God has promised me that he's able to do far more than I could ever ask or think. He's promised me that if I delight myself in him, he will give me the desires of my heart, that he shall meet all of my needs according to his riches and glory. He has promised me that I don't have to fear or be dismayed because he is my God. He will strengthen me and help me and uphold me with his righteous right hand. He promised me that when I pass through the waters, he will be with me and the waters will not overtake me. And when I walk through the fire, the fire will not burn me. He has promised to be my son and shield, the one who gives me grace and glory, the upholder of my head, the one who will not withhold any good thing from those of us who walk uprightly. He promised me no weapon formed against me would prosper, that whatever I ask in his name, according to his will, so that the Father would be glorified, that he would do. He promised that I believe in him and in the works that he did, greater works than I would do. He promised me that when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not fear because he's with me. He promised me that if I call on him, he will answer me and show me great and unsearchable things which I know not. He promised me perfect peace if my mind is fixed on him. He said if I cast my cares on him, he would sustain me and never allow me to be shaken. He promised me that the angel of the Lord would be encamped around me if I fear him and that he would deliver me. He promised me that nothing would ever be able to separate me from his love. Not sin, not Satan, not 
principalities, not powers, not even death. He promised me that he would not treat me as my sins deserve, repay me according to my iniquities, because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for me. He proved it by a cause he took his sin, my sin, away from me as far as the east is from the west. He promised that when he sees me, he sees me just as if I never sinned and just as if I always obeyed. He promised me I'm more than a conqueror through him who loved me. He promised to give me grace when I boldly approach his throne. He promised that he's turning every bad thing good, that weeping may endure for the night, but joy's coming in the morning. He promised that the righteous would never be forsaken nor their seed begging for bread. He promised that he knows the way that I take and when I come forth, I'll be like gold tried in the fire. He promised that the suffering of this present world is not to be compared to the glory of the next world. He promised that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, it lives in me. That Jesus, his word, his grace is sufficient. I've got all that I need for life and for godliness. He promised me that when I take my last breath, when my heart starts beating, my lungs stop breathing, that to be absent from my body is to be present with him. He's promised that one day, as lightning flashes in the east, the heavens are gonna open up. The Lord himself will set, will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. An angel will put one foot on the sea and one foot on the land and declare that time will be no more, that dead in Christ will be raised. say yes and amen. Come on, say it with me. We say yes and amen. To those promises, we say yes and amen. To all of God's promises, we say yes and amen. A future reality that is yet to be a reality, that one day will be a reality, that we begin to live today as though it already is. Father, in Jesus' name, encourage us speak faith into us, speak hope into us, God. Father, may we hold on to your promises. Let us hold to your word as the remnant of Israel did for thousands of years. May we trust in your word because no word of yours ever fails. And may we live in hope. And may we have the hope that allows us to wait for the fulfillment of every single promise which you, Father, will keep. And Father, so as we get ready to sing together at all of our churches, let us sing this song knowing that it's true. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, 